welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Thursday, May 11th, we are studying Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. In today's text, Jesus gives the first of seven letters that John is to write to congregations in Asia Minor. This first letter is addressed to the angel of the church in Ephesus. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Steve Andrews. Pastor Andrews serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you, brother. An honor to study God's Word with you today. So we are in the book of Revelation. We're starting chapter 2 today. Pastor Andrews, just about the book of Revelation as a whole, this is one of those books that garners a lot of attention, both from Christians and sometimes non-Christians. Just This is a question that I'm asking all of our guests. What's your take on the book of Revelation? Why is it an important part of Scripture for us? I'll start with the opposite. The book of Revelation, both in the church and outside today, is a book that causes great fear for many people. Um, the maybe the main image people take away is that picture of war, is the picture of the devil and the final battle and Armageddon and how he's going to come and there's going to be great suffering and tragedy and sorrow and loss and death. And that's the opposite of what God actually wrote this book for. God gave this book to his already suffering, already persecuted people. I mean, these are Christians living in the height of Roman persecution as the Roman emperor would arrest them and, and execute them for their faith. And God is writing to them really two purposes. The first is to remind them that Jesus Christ has already conquered sin, death, and the devil. Satan has lost, and it's already done, which is why in Revelation 16, when you get the battle of Armageddon and Satan musters his forces against God, all that you see is those words, it is done. God simply speaks, there is no battle. It's already won. It's already over. Christ is victorious. This is the good news that Revelation seeks to share and encourage and build up the church with. And then the second piece is Jesus Christ is coming soon, and that gives us the urgency to go and share this good news with others because there are other people around us who, who don't know that, who, who aren't looking for Christ's return, and their end would be the second death, and that's not what we as the church, nor nor the love of God, would have for them. So we're starting chapter 2 today in this book that teaches us Jesus has already won the victory, and he is coming soon. What should we know about the context, what John has already seen and written leading up into this chapter? And chapter 1 gave us the idea, again, of what the, the book is written for, right from the outset, that this is the message that the Lord wants his people to know. He wants them to to receive and to hear the testimony of this book, the things that will soon take place. And then John gets to see the throne of God. He gets to then see Christ, and Christ will be the, 
the one who speaks, well, the, the upcoming seven letters here, but the Lord becomes the speaker. He is the, the one who shares this vision with his apostle. So what we're starting today, as I mentioned in the introduction, is a series of seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor. The names of these churches were already listed in the book in verse 11 of chapter 1. And today we have the letter that is written to the church in Ephesus. As we go through these letters over the next several days, we'll notice that there are some similarities in each one. So as we get started, walk us through the general format of these epistles, just as The epistles of St. Paul share a similar format. So these epistles, these letters share a similar format. What are some of the features we're going to encounter? Sure. There's basically a sevenfold structure to the letter to each church. It's going to begin with the addressee. So what congregation is this being written to? And so you'll have the seven cities that are mentioned. All seven of these cities are, as you mentioned, located in Asia Minor, uh, starting with Ephesus, which if I'm not mistaken, is where John spent a good chunk of his life living in the city of Ephesus. And then it'll move in a clockwise direction uh, through the remaining six cities. After that, you get a note about Jesus, the one who is making this declaration, a description of him who sends the message. And then third, there's an affirmation, something that the Lord sees that the congregation is doing well. As you look at those, sometimes you'll see a reflection of the church today, that it's something we're doing well and and sometimes not, which leads into the next thing is a rebuke of the church. The Lord expresses an area where the congregation has not been faithful and where they need to repent. And we'll see a reflection of ourselves in many of those as well. And then there comes the call to repent, which is something the Lord calls for all people to do. Then you'll have a basically the statement of having an ear to hear, which is Jesus' reference to faith in the gospel accounts. He who has an ear, let him hear. Matthew chapter 11, verse 15, he speaks that way, for example. And lastly, the closing note to each church is a blessing to the one who conquers. So that's the one who endures the fight who has endured through sin, death, and the devil, not by their own doing, but by the power of Christ himself. And to them, God grants the gift of paradise. And so those blessings will apply to us as Christians today as well. Mm. These letters are written to specific churches, as you mentioned, in Asia Minor. And as you said, they they tend to go from, it looks like if I'm, I'm looking at the map that's on page 2,197 of the Lutheran Study Bible, And if you think about it like the face of a clock, you would start with Ephesus about nine o'clock and then you go around clockwise till you get to Laodicea about three o'clock. So that's that's kind of the progression in in terms of the geography from one letter to the next. But these are written to specific congregations. And I suppose, you know, there's an element of this when we read about especially Paul's epistles that are written to a particular congregation or maybe even to a particular individual how do we take those letters that are written to specific congregations in specific circumstances and use them in our lives as Christians in our congregations today? I mean, the one note here is the value of this being a historical book, the, the recognition that these seven congregations existed, that these were the Lord's people, these are our brothers and sisters in Christ, 
and these these words, these messages to them very much were true. Uh, some of these cities still exist. Some of them still have Christian churches in them. Others don't. It would be a very different perspective, I think, to live, for example, in Smyrna today and, and be a part of the church there and and then have this letter from yeah. Revelation chapter 2 and wonder if it's still about me or not. Um, but at the same time, as I said before, like we can see as Jesus speaks to these churches, we can see the, these things about ourselves as well, these calls to repent or these affirmations, what is good and what isn't, and what do we need to turn away from. Mm. So these are real historical congregations needing to read these letters at this time, and yet these letters, as all Scripture, does come to us as the Word of God still. Now, I'm just thinking about this right now. These letters, pr- presumably, for example, the church in Ephesus received the letter that is addressed to them, but would they have also received the whole book, do you think? Or And even the letters to the other churches? I mean, it seems like, yes, this letter that we're going to read was addressed to Ephesus, but in reality, the whole book is also to the church at Ephesus. Does that make sense? I agree. I think that as Revelation will have a sevenfold structure to it, and that seven number gets repeated, and, and even the three cycles of sevens and things that are coming— uh, to have the seven churches, I think they they probably did all receive all seven letters to keep that that same kind of a, a theme going through the book. So one more thing to pick up about each letter before we dive into this one particular about Ephesus. Each letter is addressed like this, and to the angel of the church in blank town. So each one is addressed, as the English translation reads, to the angel of the church. How should we understand that? Who is the angel of these churches? Well, there are certainly many who will read Revelation and understand that to be one of God's angels. However, the word angel in both Greek and Hebrew, it can also mean messenger. And that's one of the primary duties that angels had was to deliver God's messages uh, when he gave them to do so. For example, Gabriel coming to Mary or Daniel, if you want to go to the Old Testament. And and telling them what they needed to hear from the Lord. And so who is the messenger that gives God's word to God's people in the church of Ephesus? That may very well be a reference to her pastor, whoever that pastor was at that point in time. Hmm. So I think think you're right. The, The word angel, as we usually hear it in English, we often think of those created beings who are spirits, they do not have bodies, that God uses as messengers and they praise him in heaven. Gabriel, Michael, these are our names for some of these angels. That's usually what we hear when we think angel. But as you said, the word angel at its root means messenger. And in fact, there are moments in the scriptures where, for example, John the Baptist is called an angel. That word applies to him because he's a messenger. Even at least at at one point to Jesus himself is called an angel, not in the sense that he's a created being, but that he is the messenger. And so I I think, at least in this context of these seven letters here in Revelation 2 and 3, I tend to agree with you that the angels of these churches, we should understand these are the pastors of these churches. They are the ones who are to hear this word given from Christ and then to pass on that word given from Christ to the congregation. Yeah, and there are many times later in the book where the word angel will refer to what we would think of as an angel. But That's right. I, That's right. I agree. Not, not here. Not yet. 
Yeah, that's right. So, so and that's just something where you have to pay attention to the context as John gives it and, and understand what he's, it seems, talking about. So he's going to write this to the angel of the church, to the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Now, we're looking again at this specific letter to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2. Tell us a little bit about this setting, the city of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was one of the grand cities of ancient Rome, and located on, on the sea, tended to do that, become a port city, and lots of people coming and going, lots of trade happening. And so it was located right there on the Aegean Sea, easy to access by land, going over to Asia Minor on its east, or again, even reach Rome itself by boat, um, hopping off to the west. So, important city. And the Apostle Paul, during his missionary journeys, is going to plant a congregation there. I believe he left Timothy as its pastor at one point. And then he's, well, the city eventually will fall away and not remain. So Ephesus, to my understanding today, not what it once was, unlike some of these other cities uh, that, that are still certainly prominent in that region. Yeah, Paul's Paul's ministry uh, has some significant events that happen in the city of Ephesus. He spends quite a bit of time there. He gives a very heartfelt farewell to the Ephesian pastors in Acts chapter 20. So it is certainly a significant city in Asia Minor, politically, as well as theologically for the Christians. That is the church to whom John is writing. As you mentioned, John also spent much of his life in the city of Ephesus as well. So let's go ahead and read the text. This is Revelation 2, verses 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That is our text for today. That's Revelation 2, verses 1 to 7, the letter to the church in Ephesus. So, Pastor Andrews, we've talked about the angel. We've talked about the city of Ephesus. So this is the addressee. Then Jesus identifies himself, and specifically he is known here as the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So Jesus here is identified. He's holding seven stars in his right hand and walking among seven golden lampstands. Remind us what this is telling us about Jesus. Sure. Most of these messages about Jesus, these introductions to these, are going to be pulled right out of Revelation chapter 1, what John has just been seeing and hearing. So for him to hold the seven stars in his right hand is, uh, it's again a revelation connection to make here. Stars and angels go hand in hand as the, the symbolic language. And so for us now to have talked about these angels as the pastors, we have the seven churches that are being addressed, 
We have their seven stars, their seven angels, their seven pastors. Jesus holds these pastors, these messengers in his hand, which as a pastor, that's a great comfort and reassurance to know that it is the Lord who is upholding me, that has me in his hand, just as John says in John chapter 10, that the Father has us in his hand. And also he walks among the seven golden lampstands from chapter 1. That's a picture of the seven congregations. You think of a, a lampstand giving light to that which is around it. And so, so is the church. That's our mission, to give light, the light of Christ, to the community that is around us where we are. Mm. And that's right there in the preceding verse, Revelation 1, verse 20, where Jesus identifies what these things are. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so Jesus reiterates what John has just seen and heard from him. I suppose, again, thinking about these letters bringing comfort to a persecuted church, this is a a marvelous way for the Lord to start these seven letters, is a reminder that he is with these these churches. He is holding their pastors in his hand. He is walking among them. The Lord's presence, the Lord's care for his church. I mean, what a marvelous way for him to start a series of letters in which he will rebuke their sin, yet it's all couched in that reality that he's caring for them and he's among them himself. He's king. He's still in control. I mentioned the book of Daniel already this this day, and that's the theme of that book. No matter how dark, no matter how evil things may get or look, God is still in control. So for us to remind, be reminded of that, that Jesus is still for us and caring for us is fantastic. Hmm. All right. So the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, Jesus is holding the pastors in his hand. He walks among the seven golden lampstands. He is among his church. In verse 2, he speaks the affirmation to this church. He writes, or John is given to write from Jesus, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. And then into verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Take us into the affirmation that Jesus speaks to the church in Ephesus. Well, there's really several positive comments about them, that they have toiled and that they've patiently endured. Those are two separate things. They've been hardworking and longworking. And we're not just to assume this to be any kind of work. This is doing the work of the Lord uh, in terms of serving him and, again, sharing that good news, being that light to the community around them. And they have not been willing to bear with evil. They have been willing to, to hear, but also recognize the false apostles, the false teachers that come about them. They are a discerning bunch, able to recognize when they hear it what is good and true and, and right and what is not. And those that they learn are false, they want nothing to do with. They, they disregard them, they get rid of them. And then verse 3 returns to the enduring patiently idea Again, persecution is around, and yet there they stand. They have not withered in the face of Rome. They have not allowed their faith to be snuffed out, but they are standing firm, and they are seeking to to continue on. Hmm. The Talk more about the toil, the patient endurance, the hard working, and the long working. 
and and just the fact that Jesus says, I know these things about you. I know your works. I think that this too brings great comfort to us as Christians when we find ourselves in the middle of that hard work and that long work. And we wonder, is it worth it? Are we, is anything being accomplished? And I, I was reminded as you were talking of the way Paul speaks in Galatians 6, where he says, let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. It, those words of Paul seem to fit very well with what Jesus is saying here. And just talk more about that comfort, because this seems like something that I think Christians face regularly, both in times of overt persecution and also when it's not maybe as overt, just to, to keep on going. Talk about the comfort, the encouragement that Jesus gives in this letter for us to do that. Sure. And and the way you phrase that reminds me of what Jesus says back in the Sermon on the Mount, I believe, of Matthew 6, uh, the kind of conversation about not praying in public, uh, because then you have your reward from the people, not not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing, or, or would, vice versa, whichever way you spoke that. Um, the idea that, yeah, the world, the world isn't really meant to always see the work that we do. And as a Christian... And those hard and difficult and laborious tasks that you do of serving your neighbor, sometimes it's the way you care for your child or a, a sick and aging parent. Uh, the, all those good works that you do in Christ's name, but nobody knows, nobody recognizes, nobody acknowledges it. And so it's easy for us in those moments to grow weary and wonder if it's all worth it. Nobody seems to care it doesn't receive that worldly recognition. But here Jesus says, I know your works. Mm -hmm. And we think of Ephesians chapter 2, and we're reminded that Jesus has made good works ahead of time for us to walk in them. We're redeemed. We are his. Whether, we, whether we're really good at doing good works or not, uh, faith comes first. The Lord has rescued us, and then he just gives us stuff to do as part of the family. And where we fail, where we fall short on those, he does forgive us, and we, we rejoice in that. Um, but we're called to do these things. We're called to toil, and we're called to be patient because we don't know the day or the hour when the Lord will return. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love the connection you made to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount because he calls us to do those things in secret where our neighbors may not see them, but the Father who does see in secret, he, he will see, he will reward. And here the Lord affirms those works that they are doing. And it, it's striking as well to me how those works are connected with the matter of what is true doctrine or what is false doctrine. We saw those things go hand in hand, especially in 1 John, how the love that we have for our neighbor comes straight from remaining in the truth of God's word, testing the spirits, that those two things, true doctrine and true love for neighbor, go hand in hand. And it seems here in the church in Ephesus, those things are going hand in hand, that they are faithfully testing those who call themselves apostles to see whether or not their teaching is true. And that testing of what's true and what's false doctrine is going hand in hand with this idea of enduring patiently, under suffering, bearing with uh, the, the truth for the sake of Christ. Talk more about that, that connection between the discerning what's true and false, and then the connection to good works. Well, the best good work we can do is to tell others about Christ. So if we are going to allow all those false teachings to 
really spoil the gospel proclamation because we're too busy focused on all these other things that don't matter. Just like as Paul goes in on his journeys and plants churches, and then after he leaves, the Jewish uh, group comes in behind him and starts teaching these people, they've got to do all these other things. They've not loved those people. They've not helped those people. They've instead wronged them. They've harmed them and torn them down. So having a a discerning ear to be able to learn what is true about the Lord so that we can share that faithfully with others is is a wondrous thing. Mm, yeah, and I, I suppose then c- to connect that even more, you know, we've talked about the works of love that we do for the neighbor, the work of sharing the good news with with others. These These works, I would imagine, are earning the church in Ephesus persecution at the time. And so that adds to that need to endure patiently, to bear up. Because I, I would imagine that had they denied the truth and gone with the false apostles, life would have been a little easier for them. And so that, I mean, again, the affirmation here from the Lord to stick with the truth, even when what it's earning you in this life doesn't seem to be all that great. Here, here we're seeing again that the affirmation of the Lord, it is in fact worth it. Hold on to the truth. And that's something that I think our listeners today are starting to realize that they're wrestling with in our own culture, as the culture has turned further and further away from anything that would resemble the truth of the Lord, uh, just to their desires of their own hearts. Uh, we're being put to the test in the workplace. Will you adhere to all the cultural movements, or will you stand out? Uh, will you remain faithful, or will you just kind of go along with the status quo to have it easy and continue to make a living? Hmm. That's right. Yeah. So these these realities from the church at Ephesus are coming to bear in our churches today. And I think that's a good place for us, us to pick up our conversation on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We are talking to Pastor Steve Andrews this morning about Revelation chapter 2. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, May 11th. We're studying Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7 with Pastor Steve Andrews. He serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, prior to the break, we were looking at the affirmation that Jesus speaks to the church in Ephesus. It's in cha- it's in verses 2 and 3 of this chapter. And Jesus commends them for their toil, for their patient endurance, for their hard working and their long working, which is connected to testing what is true and false and bearing with the truth, even when going with falsehood might have made life easier for them. And we had started on the other side of the break to talk about the church today. How, how do you see the church where we live in the United States, and you and I are both in the Midwest, how, how are we doing with this? Where, where can we learn, how can we take these words and apply them to ourselves, Christians, in 
2023. I think we'll see as you go through the seven letters, some of these affirmations are things that are, are also very well could be spoken of our church, but I'm not sure this opening one is all that strong of a point for us. Uh, the American church is weak with when it comes to discernment, being able to hear what is good, what is true. Okay, walk that back. Being able to hear a spoken word and know if it's good and know if it's true or know if it's false. And in part, that's simply because we don't take the time to be in the Lord's word as a, as a body. And I'll say that even for our own Lutheran church here. We don't know his word. And so it's easy for a false teacher to come up and say something that tickles our ears and we believe it. And so there's, there's a great struggle with that, being outside of the Word as much as we are. Uh, what we spend our time with is what we know and what we can then regurgitate to others. Uh, we're much more interested in things that are entertaining than we are in the Lord's Word today. So um, in terms of the second part of enduring patiently, there are certainly parts of the church in the world that do this, where they are persecuted extremely and yet they flourish and they preach that gospel, and I'd love to know how they're doing it um, as they go about fairly stealthily uh, to do so, still preaching Christ and yet staying out of trouble and balancing that somehow. America so far isn't one of those places. Uh, The slightest sign of trouble, oftentimes the faith of the Christian wilts, like the parable of the sower from Matthew 13, um, the, the seed that has been sown either in the rocky soil or among the weeds. When the sun comes up and trouble comes, that faith is quickly extinguished. We go into hiding. Mm-hmm. I think you could argue we're, we already look tired, um, even just from the last few years. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, you know, as we think about these affirmations and then the rebuke that we'll, we'll come to, and again, knowing that these are going to be in all of these seven letters, we're going to find opportunity for self-examination in all of them opportunity to repent in all of them, and, and also opportunity, I think, to rejoice in what Jesus says. You know, I, I do think that, that, generally speaking, in congregations of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, that understanding what is true and false and knowing the difference between the two, this, I think, is something that our pastors talk about regularly and hopefully is on the minds of our hearers as well, such that it's, it's not at least totally foreign to us as Lutherans to say, when, when our pastor says, hey, what that preacher is saying is false, most of our hearers are not going to say, I can't believe he said that. That's something that we're, we're used to, to pointing out. I do think what you're saying about the patient endurance is something that we, we as, as Lutherans and, and probably more as Americans could stand to learn. And not only just from uh, of all the, the specific you know, religious instances that you're talking about, but just in general, we are not a very patient people. No. <laughs> I mean, how, how long does it take when, when you're leaving the moment of silence to confess your sins in the divine service before you start to get a little antsy? Like, when's he, when's he going to let us talk again? This, this time of silence, the just being patient is not something that we're wired for and we're not programmed for, it seems right now. And so we could, I think there's something for us to learn when it comes to patient endurance of, of bearing up over long periods of time that I think is something, I, th- I think you're right. And this is something that we're going to need to, to work on. It's an opportunity for us to repent and, and pray for the Lord's strength. Yeah, I mean, thinking just as you mentioned it about maybe how we're programmed in the American society, uh, 
we're living in a culture where everything's about being happy. Mm -hmm. Everything's about your self-pleasure. And so the things that would be against that, the things that wouldn't make you happy, the things that would be difficult or, or bring you even sadness, perhaps, those things are to be shunned. And so, yeah, the ability to endure anything where we just want, you know, the next little adrenaline rush, the next uh, dopamine high from, from clicking on the next video, that's something that, yeah, we could certainly use some training in. I think this is where the ancient church's practice of fasting it doesn't even have to be necessarily food, but restraining ourselves for periods of time from some of these just rapid fire entertainments that we have, that could be of, of great benefit to us to start to learn how to be patient and to endure um, yeah. in case such persecution would come. Yeah. Yeah. And then again, to know that the Lord sees this, he knows these works, these works are, are pleasing in his sight, though the world may look at them with disdain, yet he sees them, he affirms those works in us, knowing that he is at work through those things to keep us faithful to him. So this is the affirmation given to the church in Ephesus. They are long working, they are hard working, they are testing what is true and false and enduring for the sake of Christ. There is a rebuke, which comes in verse four. Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So talk about this rebuke. It's pretty simple, uh, but what's, what's there? The Lord warned in Matthew chapter 24 about the idea that our, our brotherly love could grow cold in, in the end of time. This is the picture here for the Ephesians, that when they first became Christians, they, they were all in. Uh, they really rejoiced in the new faith that they had. And yet over time, there's a little hardness setting in, uh, a little hardness to the heart that they, they did love, but that's growing colder. They're not, they're not quite serving with the same, perhaps, enthusiasm or even selflessness towards others that they may have once. Hmm. Uh, so you brought up what Jesus says in Matthew 24. This, you know, abandoning the love that you had at first reminds me of the parable of the sower, where Jesus talks about particularly the two middle soils, the one that, that springs up right away, but then the sun comes out and scorches it or the other one that grows and then it gets choked out by the weeds. You know, this is, I think, always a, a danger for us as Christians is to have that vibrant, enthusiastic faith and then either the, the sufferings of this life or the cares of this world, they, they do something such that, that it starts to die. And it, it, I mean, I think that's what is being said here to the Ephesians. Not that they, you know, he says, on the one hand, they're the church, and Jesus is holding the pastor in his hand, and he's walking among them. And yet he, he speaks pretty strongly, you've abandoned this first love. I mean, this is a, a pretty strong call to repentance. Yeah, in contrast to they are patiently enduring. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like they're saints and sinners at the same time. 1,900 years ago. That's right. That's right. Okay, so so they've abandoned their love that they had at the first. This is the the rebuke. This is what Jesus sees that is is not positive as opposed to what he's seen that is. So talk about how this applies to us as Christians today. What what do you think? We have been called to love and serve our neighbor. And as we think about it, I think the personal reflection would be 
would be pretty easy to do when you see your neighbor in need today, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. What's your, what's the first thought that comes to mind? If it's if it's the idea of well, this is a burden to go help that person, or I don't want to help that person, you know, that's the that's the sinful nature, as you were mentioning, that is that is pushing back against our faith. Um, versus, I see that need, and I I just I go and I help. So that's the temptation for us in the American culture, because again, it's supposed to be a life that is just happy and self-pleasing. And so we've been taught to live a life that's all about me. And so that makes it difficult to unlearn that as Christians, that we are not to live a life that's about me, but a life that's about one another. Mm. Uh, Thinking about the word that is used here by the Lord, that this is, they've abandoned the love that they had at first. This was a key word in John's gospel. It's a key word in his epistles, you know, and particularly first John, this love that we would have for the brothers always starts with the love that God has for us in his son, Jesus Christ. It's very striking how within just this first of these seven letters, the Lord is giving the very basics to, and again, I mean, knowing that this is for the church at Ephesus, but also for the church at large, these are the basics that he's, he's talking about. What does it mean to be a Christian to, to endure for the truth and to hold on to love? Well, what does that love look like? John has spent, and I know we didn't talk about the order in which he writes these things, I suppose for us, that's, that's not the, the biggest point, but we've learned from reading John's gospel and his epistles, what that love truly is. And when we see our love growing cold, or when we start to abandon our love for others, there is the call to repent. And that always must point us back to the love that God has had for us in Christ. That's where we've always got to go back. Otherwise, this love will never come from us. Yeah, I, I haven't looked. I'm guessing this is agape, uh, one of the which Greek word this is that's behind this. But if it is, certainly that's the love of God that is first for us. And that's the language John will use elsewhere. We love because he first loved us. We have to be filled with Christ. And that goes back to what we said in the previous verses too. Uh, what are we filling ourselves with? Are we... Are we spending time in the Lord's Word and being filled by Him through prayer and thanksgiving, or are we spending our time just enjoying the fruits of of the world? Right, right. So, I mean, the way that I suppose we diagnose what John is is writing here from the Lord is, is to look, you know, I've abandoned the love that I had at first. Am I loving my neighbor? Am I loving God? Those two things go hand in hand. That's how we, we see this diagnosis. You know, I think back again to, to 1 John, where he says, if, if you're not loving your brother and you can see him, then how can you be loving God when you can't see him? And so those, I mean, when it talks about the abandoning the love that you had in first, those two loves, the love for God and the love for neighbor, they go together. That's a way that we can diagnose this within ourselves. So this is the rebuke that Jesus gives. I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Then he calls to repent. In verse 5, Jesus says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Talk about this call to repentance and the warning that Jesus speaks in verse 5. Oh. The Lord calls all of us to repent, and the warning is the same. If, if we don't repent, what happens? Uh, we're stuck in our sins. And so his call for them to repent specifically says, remember where you have fallen. Think about where they were when they first started. 
Think about what it was like when you first became a Christian, when Paul planted your church 30 years ago, 20, 20 something years ago, whatever the time frame is here, uh, probably around 90 AD. Remember the works you did at first. Do the works you did at first. So a, a call to return back to what they once had. It's not like this is something unknown to them, which I think is helpful. Uh, I want you to go do this thing that you've never done before. No, go back to what you were doing. Uh, you you know this thing. Uh, live that way. If you don't repent, well, what's the warning here? I will remove your lampstand. The lampstand, as we mentioned earlier, is the church. It is that they are the light of the world in that place, that that light will be snuffed out. There won't be a church in Ephesus any longer. Word and sacrament won't be there anymore. Um, and one of the commentaries I was reading from uh, shared that there is no Christian church in that that part of the Asia Minor today, or Turkey. Um, that once proud city no longer stands, and there is no congregation. So the warning to Ephesus it came to pass. I don't know when, historically speaking, that, that church disappeared, but it did. And the Savior's loving warning that he gives to them is his call also to all of us uh, to recognize this as well, that he has given us the light that is his good news, his gospel, that is himself, his very self. And if we just sit on it, if we do nothing with it, that that light will be extinguished. He'll take it away. He'll remove it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have on the one hand, we are right to take comfort in the promise that Jesus makes concerning his church, that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But that promise is also not a guarantee that there will be a local congregation in every place. And that's where this warning we do well to take very seriously and repent heartily, lest that gospel light be snuffed out in the place where we do love to hear it. I mean, we... <laughs> Yeah, th- this is a warning that we should we should take very seriously as, as Christians and all the more as we see the day approaching. So the strong warning, the call to repent from Jesus, he will remove their lampstand if they do not repent, a warning that we take to heart still today. In verse 6, Jesus does return to a word of affirmation. He says, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So this is, I mean, it sounds like it goes hand in hand with what he was saying earlier about testing those who would call them apostles and those being false. He brings up this group of the Nicolaitans and they, they hate the works of the Nicolaitans. Jesus hates the work of the Nicolaitans. Who are the Nicolaitans? You know, I'm not actually sure. I don't, I don't know historically if we know. Um, what we can recognize is that it's certainly a false teacher and, that much is clear from the text, and they will show up again in the chapter down in verse 15 in the third letter to the church that's in Pergamum, uh, where it's writ- written, you, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, therefore repent. But it's never really outlined. It's never really specified. Uh, some of the early church fathers, Irenaeus and Clement, made the claim that this is actually one of the, the, le- the leading men in the early church, uh, so Acts chapter 6, verse 5, uh, they appoint Nicolaus or Nicolaus or however you want to pronounce it uh, to be one of those seven men along with Stephen. And I don't, again, I don't know if historically that's true either, but the, the name kind of ending fits together. 
if it's him, what a fall to have had. But this is also long enough later that maybe he had a group of people following him and that group has disappeared from, from the faith. So it's, it's a bit of a puzzle. Yeah. Um, in terms of who they were, what they were teaching. I think the Lutheran Study Bible suggests that they maybe were offering meat that had been indulging in meat that had been offered to, to pagan gods and were caught up in sexual immorality. So those are possibilities for what, what these false teachers were up to. Dr. Brighton in his commentary mentions that, that Irenaeus suggests they were an antinomian sect, so a, a group that didn't have any use for the law and they claimed license for sensual sins. That's one thing that he mentions. It, it would be, and again, I, I know that we're not certain about this, but it would be striking if the Nicolaitans traced their origins to the, the Nicholas of Acts chapter 6, one of the seven deacons, simply for the fact of, of the way that it's brought up here, where you've got a group that is being rebuked for losing the love that they had at first. I think Nicholas would then, if again, this is a big if, but if if it is the Nicholas of Acts chapter six, then he would be an example of what happens, and his followers then would be an example of what happens to those who've lost their love at first when the lampstand is removed. It would be a very striking warning within that context. But again, I, I know that's a there's a big if as to whether or not that's the connection we should make or not, and I don't. So I don't want to speak poorly of, of Nicholas if the, if there's no connection here at all. But it, it would just be a striking thing. And even if it is Nicholas, it doesn't necessarily have to have been him that fell. True. I mean, we think of, of Luther, and we look to Luther as being faithful, but how many Lutherans in right. the, the culture around us would we look at as, as being false teachers today? True. So this is maybe just part of that same warning that Jesus has given, that even though the, the love was there at first— it's possible to wander away from it. It's possible to lose that that light that you once had and as this could potentially be this group. Or I, most people don't wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to be a heretic today. It just, it takes time. Yeah. It happens, typically it happens over years. Yeah, yeah. And, and hence the need for the warning, the wake-up call, the call to repentance that Jesus gives in this letter. You're abandoning this love that you had at first, so repent now, lest the lampstand be removed. And this, you know, again, affirmation that they hate the work of these false teachers, the Nicolaitans, this is a part of coming back to that love that they had at first. Stick with the truth, avoid what is false, endure for the sake of Christ. In verse 7, then, we get the last parts of the letter. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is going to be repeated throughout the letters. And then to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So take us into these last two parts of the letters and what's given particularly to this church in Ephesus. Sure. Yeah, in that sense, we've got three things here. We've got our opening, the one who has the ear to hear. So again, that's just Jesus' reference to faith. Uh, throughout the Gospels as he preaches and teaches, the one who has the ear to hear, the eyes to see, um, let him hear. So the faithful, hear what the Spirit says, hear the word of God that is being given to you. Then to the one who conquers, this is the beginning of the blessing, but I think maybe a, a bit of a, a dig back into John's other writings for that conquer word could be useful. Um, I don't know that conquer gets used as much, but overcome, similar word to us, I think, gets used in John's writings a lot. So John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus said, I have said these things to you, 
that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Then jumping forward into his epistles, 1 John 4, verse 4, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And in the closing chapter, verses 4 and 5, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Mm. So our our overcoming isn't really ours. Our conquering isn't really ours. It is the work that Christ has already done for us, the Christ, Christ's crucifixion, Christ's resurrection as he has conquered sin, death, and the devil. And by faith, we are part of that. We are co-heirs with him. We reign with him by his work, by what he has done. And this will get picked up in Revelation 12. Um, John will write there, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God, the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser, so the devil, of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. They have conquered him by the blood of his by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. So it's not by our works that we conquer Satan. It's not by our works that we conquer this world. It is by Christ's blood, and it's then by the spoken word of Jesus, his forgiveness of sins, the promise of life. That's the conquering that Christian does. So in, in each of these seven blessings, the one who conquers is the one who endures, is the one who remains faithful, no matter what the Romans or the Americans or whoever uh, throws our way. That's right. Yeah. The one who, and the one who believes I I was, as you were talking about those connections in John's gospel and in, in John's first epistle, the, the word is the same, at least in John 16 and in first John five, it is that same Greek word overcoming or conquering Nike that that word that you know we know from the shoe brand (laughs) that that means victory or overcoming conquering those are the same words so great connections to make here not only in this letter but in the ones to come the one who conquers the one who wins the victory is the one who trusts in christ who has won the victory for us so in each of these letters then there will be a specific blessing given here to the one who conquers jesus says he will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Talk to us about the specific blessing given here. The tree of life. First mentioned back in the book of Genesis, and the promise of the tree of life that we read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, is that the one who eats from the tree of life would live forever. And so here, Jesus, if we want to just make it simple, the one who remains faithful will live forever. Mm. I mean, this is the gift. And so this is the paradise of God. We get to live with him forevermore. A new heaven, a new earth. We're skipping to the end of the book here, but the Revelation 21 and 22 talk about this and bring the tree of life back up again. Um, it's mentioned three times in those chapters and almost pictured, it's pictured kind of strangely as it spans over the, the river. It's on both banks of the river in that, in that section and it has, it produces different fruits. It has 12 different fruits and each one is produced in its own month, which is a, a nice picture that God's provision remains always. We think of a tree. So you have a fruit tree maybe in your yard. It produces seasonally. You get a harvest from it at one point of the year, and that's it. This tree, this tree produces always and always has food on it because the Lord provides and nourishes his people forever. So that's a really nice picture. Um, I think the challenge that a lot of Christians will wrestle with, what happened to the tree of life from the garden 
from from Eden, from Genesis 3? And I'm, I don't know that we can answer that question. I don't know that we can say with certainty that this tree that is being mentioned now and also later in the book is the same tree, or if that tree was maybe destroyed or, or what happened. But yeah, we, we know the promise. The promise is clear enough. Yeah, yeah. So those who conquer, those who trust in Christ, they will live forever. You, you, you made the connection to the first chapters of the Bible and to the last chapters of the Bible. Got about a minute here, Pastor Andrews. How about making connection to the tree of life with what we see in the middle of the Bible? As John tells us, what happens in the garden where Jesus is crucified, buried, and raised? Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus became a curse for us. The tree of life, as we think of it, whoever eats from this tree will live forever. Whoever looks upon the cross of Christ, whoever trusts in Christ, his crucifixion, and the forgiveness he won for us there, uh, we live forever. Um, So we could certainly talk about the tree of Jesus Christ being the tree of life. I mean, in our normal visioning, we wouldn't think of it that way. It's a tree that's been cut down. It's, It's wood, right? It's been turned into lumber and made into the shape of a T, and then pounded into with nails. And yet it is from that tree, which some of our hymns even call the throne of Christ, uh, it is from that tree that life comes. It is from the blood that he poured out for us there that our sins have been forgiven, and Satan's hold over us has been destroyed, crushed, to make the connection again to Genesis 3.15. Pastor Steve Andrews serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. He has been helping us today to study Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Pastor Andrews, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. Pastor Steve Starkey writes in his hymn, The Tree of Life, number 561 in Lutheran Service Book. Now from that tree of Jesus' shame flows life eternal in his name. For all who trust and will believe, salvation's living fruit receive. And of this fruit so pure and sweet, the Lord invites the world to eat, to find within this cross of wood the tree of life with every good. This is the promise that the Lord makes to those who trust in him. They will eat of this tree of life. They will live forever. Endure, dear Christians, in this faith that Christ has given you. Rejoice to go to him in eternal life. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the book of Revelation, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.